Welcome to Humans of Fintech, the podcast where I share the inspiring stories of diverse leaders bringing equity to financial systems through fintech. I'm Nicole Casperson. In this episode, I am sitting down with Julia Borston, CNBC's senior media and tech correspondent. She's also the author of a new book called When Women Lead. Now, Julia and I were able to have a fantastic live conversation with an audience and Q&A in what was in actually chilly Venice, California. But in this episode, we talk about Julia's process for writing the book. We also get through some of the stories in the book, such as Sally Krawcheck or Shivani Sarora from Tala. And we talk about the ways that women succeed, but also build incredible companies that make the world a better place. We also get through some of the female characteristics like vulnerability and empathy and talk about how those are actually superpowers and not weaknesses. Now, this entire episode is hopefully here to inspire you, to inspire the next generation of female leaders. And I'm just so excited to have Julia on the show. It was such a treat. Enjoy this episode with Julia Borston. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Nicole Casperson. I'm the founder of Fintech is Femme. Fintech is Femme is a media company dedicated to upholding Fintech's promise of financial inclusivity by elevating the stories of women and diverse leaders. So it is such a treat to be here with Julia live in L.A. on this slightly chilly evening. We're in Venice. This is summer in Venice. <laughs> so- <laughs> I coming from New York, I should have checked the weather. I was like, we're, we're going to LA. It's going to be warm. Wear short sleeves. There's this thing in LA called June gloom, and oh, it yeah. exists many months in Venice. So <laughs> yeah, it's not June yet, but oh my gosh. Well, so excited to be here. Um, Julia, it's not often that I have the opportunity to interview a fellow journalist and one who has gone so out of their way and been so impactful for women leading and women inclusion and just ensuring that women's voices and their leadership is amplified and heard. So I guess to get started, I would love to, you know, talk about obviously the book, but how long did the book take to write? Like, what does a project like this take? Well, I feel like in a way I've been working on this book my whole career since I became a journalist when I was 21 years old as a young reporter at Fortune magazine. But specifically working on this book, I decided around December 2019 that this was my book project. And I was slowly working on the book proposal, doing some interviews, doing some writing, had not submitted the proposal to anyone yet. And then the pandemic struck and I was had just done some of my couple of the key interviews that I write about in the introduction. And I was like, oh, who knows how long this pandemic thing will last. I better make a lot of headway when I don't have to travel <laughs> for my day job on CNBC. And so I sort of frantically worked on the book proposal because I sort of had this sense of like, who knows how long I will be traveling. And then I submitted the book proposal to publishers in June. I'm sorry, in May. And by early June, I was working on the book. Wow. So and then that was June of 2020. So about 18 months of writing, another six months of editing, and then many months to bring into the world. And it came out in October. And it's been an amazing journey. And I actually feel like I've learned even more talking to women since the book has come out. And even, you know, a lot of things that have been validated and then a lot of surprises. Mm, Yeah, I mean, you have highlighted the stories of a ton of women that I admire. Sally Krawcheck, Shivani Sarora, among, what, 60 others, right? Like 60 women profiled, their stories told, their case studies, basically. And it's such a perfect example of like show and not tell in writing. 
But how did you find, I guess, the commonality? I think for me, I would, as a fellow writer, I'd probably like struggle to interview, have all these interviews and then put them all together into a cohesive story. Well, I actually feel like there were so many things about working on this book during the pandemic that were a gift. One of which in that it was that I got all these people to do interviews with me because everyone was at home those first couple of months and they couldn't say no. So it was a captive audience. But also I was able to do a lot of these interviews in sort of close succession. And so I would sit there in the afternoon after having finished my day job on CNBC and I would interview two women. And after each interview, I'd go through the automated transcript. Thanks to the magic of technology. I used a company called Otter to transcribe That's my interviews. Nice. It's a great technology. And so I would go through the transcripts and I would sort of pull out the themes. And so after each interview, I'd identify some key themes, key skills and strategies that each of these women had used. And it started to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And so after five interviews, I was like, oh, I got to look into this empathy thing. And that the stories led me to the research. And I was like, let me find the academic research about empathy. Why are women more likely to demonstrate empathy? What happens when men demonstrate empathy mm-hmm. leadership? How do they benefit as well? So it really was this kind of fortuitous, like the I got a lot of recommendations of people to talk to. Uh, friends of mine like Dana Settle, we have a mutual friend here who's a, a big VC in LA. She recommended people and other VCs recommended people that I talked to. And those interviews led to identifying the skills and the skills led to so much research. I ended up reading about 300 academic studies talking about why these skills and strategies that women tend to display are so valuable in leadership and not just valuable for women, but valuable for anyone. Mm. What surprised you the most? There were so many surprises. I think (laughs) there's this idea that there's, and I I grew up as a writer at Fortune Magazine, and there were a couple of these key archetypes of leadership. Mm. And when I was entering the business a million years ago, there was a lot of talk about like Six Sigma and this like GE way of management. And that's what everyone wanted to do. And that was like the model and the icon of leadership. And then there was another model of leadership. And then there was Mark Zuckerberg and his move fast and break things. And there's sort of these waves of leadership. Oh, now everyone's trying to do this. Everyone's trying to do this. And there's no one right way. Mm. There is no one right way to lead. Mm. And to me, what was so interesting is that we can all be leaders in our own ways without ever having to match this iconography of what a good leader looks Mm. like. Mm -hmm. And it was very liberating to see that people who are introverts can be great leaders. People who are incredibly empathetic can take these things, these traits that have been so frequently described as flaws Mm. and really turn them into superpowers. So that was so reassuring and liberating just for me, who's someone who does not match these archetypes of leadership. And then also there were a couple of key skills that I had no idea correlated with great leadership. And the one that I think about a lot is gratitude. Oh, yeah. Um, And I in a bunch of these interviews, again, I was sitting there like I do my day job and I'd interview a bunch of women on Zoom and my cat would be sitting on my lap and I would be like, okay, what am I learning from this interview? And there was one week when a bunch of women talked about how grateful they were. Wow. Whitney Wolf Heard was talking about how grateful she was that she'd had this traumatic experience at Bumble. I'm sorry, at Tinder, because without that traumatic experience at Tinder, she never would have founded Bumble. Mm. Or Sheena Allen was talking about how grateful she was that she understood the problem of being unbanked and not having access to financial services. She's like, I'm so grateful that I have this combination Mm. of experience in the startup world and seeing that my family doesn't use a credit card. And so having that combination of perspectives, it was something that made her feel a true gratitude that she could tackle this problem. And so grateful, gratitude, blessed came up so many times. There was this one week I was like, something is going on here. I never associated gratitude with having anything to do with business. Mm. Um, I thought that was a personal thing. Mm -hmm. And so then that led me to all this research about how women are more likely to practice gratitude, literally just to think about stuff they feel grateful for reasons why they feel grateful. 
And then there's so much other research about how taking that time to think about things that make you grateful correlates with longer term decision making. Right. You're going to be more patient. You're not going to go for the near term win. You're going to go for the long term play. And that's so valuable in business. We should all be trying to make decisions without the anxiety of the near term. Where like, how can we be smarter over the long term? So this idea that something as simple and as personal as gratitude yeah. could really be a leadership superpower was really caught me by surprise. Yeah. Something I really loved about the book while I was reading it is really the way that you would kind of pull out these superpowers, right? From these incredible women building who had these traumatic experiences and then said, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to go build my own. And do Which it. is what you've done, <laughs> hopefully without the traumatic experience. I mean, that unfortunately happened. Um, but anyway, but we are here. And I love that you kind of flip the narrative. That's so important to me with the fact that identifying what has happened to you traumatically and kind of acknowledging the context of the history of whatever has happened to you, understanding the context of, you know, what happens to women growing up throughout society. That's not a weakness. Yeah, I mean, I think, and actually it's interesting because when yeah. I was starting writing the book, I didn't want the book to be about all the challenges yes. women face. I'm an incredibly optimistic person. I'm very solution-oriented. And I didn't want to be like talking about all the ways women yeah. face double standards. But what I realized is that that information is valuable. Like mm-hmm. that knowledge of like, oh, this is why I got that comment. It has mm-hmm. nothing to do with me. It's actually really empowering if you understand if you're facing bias, because then you could say this has nothing to do with me. I'm not going to let this bother me or hold me back. And I'm able to glean from this conversation what actually is about me, what is valuable. And so I think there's something about sort of knowledge is power. Don't Mm -hmm. use your understanding that the system exists to bring you down. Use your understanding of the system to better navigate it. Right. And I mean, you even have a whole section about that, that intersectionality that everyone here has. Right. And what that really does to you is it gives you that that third eye. It gives you that understanding to help navigate any room. And I think that especially as women, if we can really tap into that, then we were unstoppable. It's so powerful. I mean, there is something about this idea of being an outsider that people always assume is a bad thing. I mean, I have been in plenty of rooms where I was the only woman. And you're like, this is sucks. I'm the only woman in the room. This is not fun. (laughs) But I actually think that there was something about seeing the power that gave to women that I wrote about in the book is that if you are the only one, Yes, it's hard. Yes, you're going to be tokenized. Yes, you're going to draw more criticism and scrutiny. But you may have a different perspective than everyone else there. And being different than the homogenous majority may give you an advantage to see problems, to see opportunities that they don't see because you are different. So I I write in the book about this idea of like having the combination of an outsider perspective with insider experience. That is a very powerful combination. Yeah. I mean, it definitely makes me think of Sally Krawcheck's story. Yeah. There's a lot of outsider kind of talk there and you know, her stepping into a role. And this I feel like this happens to a lot of women where they're brought in because they are, you know, kind of that outsider insider. And they're brought in to almost like kind of tidy up the mess that was created by whatever male leader before, whoever, whatever leader, you know. I mean, does that feel like a pattern at all with a lot of these, with some of these women? Well, I did identify this pattern of what I called reformers. And so as I was like categorizing all these interviews into different categories, I had this like giant poster boards where I would write different words and and skills and traits on, is that I saw there's this phenomenon of women who are like, I'm succeeding well enough in my industry, but I see that the industry is broken. And by the way, Whitney Wolf Heard is a perfect example of that. She was part of the founding team of Tinder. 
And she got, there was a lawsuit, she got ejected and rejected, and it was traumatic for so many reasons. She was trolled online, it was terrible. But she said, I understand how this business works. And I'm a woman, I was the only woman in that team. I saw that they weren't really serving their female customers. So there was something about her combination of the insider experience and the fact that she was always an outsider in that room that really gave her the power of the perspective to launch Bumble, which has, of course, been a huge success. Same thing was true of Sally Krawcheck. And um, for those of you who don't know Sally's story, she was the most powerful woman on Wall Street. And during the financial crisis, she was at Citigroup and she noticed that the company had sold these assets that or marketed these assets without acknowledging that they could go to zero. And they were sort of sold as like not particularly high risk assets. The assets went to zero, as many things did during the financial crisis. So she was advocating to the first to the CEO and then to the board that they should repay customers at least some of their losses. And her argument was this is the right thing to do. But also like this will pay off over time. Like we're not going to lose. It'll be good for business in the long run. And she ultimately got pushed out and fired over that. But what was so interesting about that story is this idea that I've discovered in my research of cultural numbness, Mm. that the longer anyone is in an organization, the more they become numb to the flaws of that organization. So if you're at a company and things have just always been done that way, you may just stop noticing that like it's the wrong way to do something. But Sally, because she was an outsider as the only woman in the room for most of her career, she was like, this isn't right, guys. Like, what are you doing? But and so she could somehow like stay immune from that cultural numbness. And so she advocated for this. They didn't do it. They probably would have been smart, too. And then she got fired. And then years later, she founded Elevest, which is focused on investment strategies for women who, of course, live longer and invest less. They actually tend to prefer to save rather than invest. But it was so interesting to see her story and also hear how much the industry has changed because of her her and since she was there. Yeah, I mean, she's literally one of my inspirations. Like if I had my my mood board, which actually I did in my original pitch deck of my brand and my company, I literally have her on my mood board as someone to like emulate. And so it's kind of reckoning with these traumatic experiences. But something about her story in particular that I love that you mentioned in the book is her trying to make a decision of whether or not she was going to speak up, right? And, or continue to speak up and if it's worth losing the job. Because, hey, you could still stay at the traditional finance company and do a lot of good. But then she said, okay, well, let me look at my children, who at the time were, you know, old enough to understand. And what would I want my kids to see me do? And at that moment, it is an immediate, yeah, yes, because, or, you know, she should always do the right thing. And then what's right with her intuition and values. And I love that you share that story because I think for me, I run into a lot of young women who are maybe just starting out in their careers. And they're always asking me about how do you continue to speak up? Because they're scared. They don't want to. They're just starting out. They don't want to, like, lose their jobs. And by the way, Sally was had many decades of a career before yeah. she felt comfortable doing that. So a lot right. of people don't feel comfortable uh, when they're in the early stages. Right. So, I mean, it's like, I don't know, what would you say to the younger crowd in that regards then? But the question is about what? Like, I think there are a lot of people who are like, oh, the system sucks, like, yeah. You no. Know, and they're like, yeah, it does. But you're not going to change the system overnight. Right. Right. So you have to sort of understand what you're dealing with, which is why I do think it's so valuable to understand what the underlying factors are behind so many of these double standards. Like for me, I've been a business reporter for 22 years or whatever it is now, many years. And it was not really until I was doing the research for my book that I understood the nature of a lot of the negative comments I had gotten 
And there was one day when I was like, I don't want to write a chapter about double standards. Like, that's too negative. I want this to be positive and solution-oriented. And I got a comment from a, a senior male communications executive about an interview I had done with a female CEO, who a woman, Ann Sarnoff, who at the time was running Warner Brothers. And this guy calls me up and I was negotiating with him to try to get his male CEO to do an interview with me. And he was like, Julia, you were just really mean in that interview with an aunt. Like your tone was really harsh. And I was like, mean. Oh, my God. Mean. I don't want to be mean. That's not who I am. And I had this like moment, like this flash of panic. And in another world, five years earlier, I would have like gone down the rabbit hole of like what I do wrong. Let me rewatch the tape. Let me talk about it with my colleagues, make sure it was fair. And in that moment, I was like thinking about the research I'd read the night before about how women are more are expected to be warm and nurturing all the time. Mm -hmm. And so if you do not act in a way that is warm and nurturing, it contradicts with the stereotype. And so people may not like that behavior because it doesn't fit what they expect of you. So I was like, oh, okay. well, you know what? I don't think you would have given the same feedback to one of my male colleagues. And he was like, oh, you just told him. (laughs) I said it. No, I said it. I said it because I was like, would you? I said, would you have given the same feedback to one of my male colleagues? And he said, no, I would have expected that kind of tone from him. I was like, well, I was just doing my job. And I said, I thought it was a really fair interview. And I also remember this study showing that women are more likely to get feedback on their style, like in performance reviews, on their style rather than their substance. And I was like, he was not really reacting to my substance. He was reacting to my tone, which he thought was not warm and nurturing. You guys are laughing because I bet this resonates. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, I know yeah. things yeah. about that. <laughs> um, but so, but it was so interesting because I was like totally liberated from any anxiety about that interaction. I was like, ah, oh, not a big deal. He just doesn't like the fact that I wasn't being warm and nurturing in that moment. We're all good. He was like, I'll have to think about this one. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. You think about that. But what was interesting is like for me as a journalist who's often, you know, the only one in the room or in an uncomfortable, I mean, I think part of just going through life as a working person is like getting used to being in uncomfortable situations, but it just doesn't bother you as much. Like you're like, I understand what I'm dealing with here. And there is a woman I quote in the book, Aya Badir. I don't know if you remember her story, but she is a Lebanese immigrant and engineer who founded a company called Little Bits, which she then sold to Osmo. It was like a kid's coding company. And she was telling me horror stories of what she faced when she was raising money. And I, she was like, people hated me. They, I didn't fit any of their stereotypes. I was an immigrant. I'm Muslim. I'm an engineer. They would always ask me where my business, my male business partner was. And she was like, there is no male business partner. It's me. I'm running this business. And she said her solution to navigating this and not letting it destroy her was to just be prepared for it. And she's like, if you know, it's like she described it as remembering to wear a jacket when it's cold out. <laughs> if you bring your jacket, you'll notice that it's cold, but it's not going to bother you. Mm. And so she's like, if I know there's going to be a certain level of bias from the all-male group of investors I'm pitching to, I will acknowledge it, but it's not going to hold me back. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think there's something about that that's very empowering. Yeah, and I think there's something to the feminine characteristics, right? Like to me, femme is just highlighting the aspects of our humanity that are inclusive, nurturing, nuanced, sophisticated, emotionally intelligent. And to me, I'm like, could you imagine if that's how people described fintech finance business? Wow. You know, maybe it should be described that way a bit more. And but those are gender, you know, they can be gender agnostic, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is my I'm a journalist. I'm not a biologist. I only mentioned testosterone or any biological factors on I think it's on one or maybe two pages of the book, because for me, I'm interested in storytelling and the vast, vast majority, 99 percent of all the things I'm writing about 
are things that are socialized. Mm. So from the time we're little, little girls are taught to be empathetic. Boys are taught that doesn't matter as much. Boys are taught to take risks. I mean, there are plenty of parenting books written about this. But these are things that are socialized. And therefore, when men adopt these skills and strategies, they are successful too. And I would say that during the pandemic, now more than, and coming out of the pandemic with all these new flexible work situations, now more than ever, these are the times when everybody of any gender really needs to understand and emulate these approaches that women have always or are more typically likely to do. I love that you just flat out say in the book, there's a line in there that's like, men working, collaborating with men is not optional. It's essential. I like wrote it down because <laughs> I think even with a brand and a company like mine with where femme is literally in the name, I have to kind of play this game where men will come up to me and be like, I love what you're doing. I wish I could be a part of it. And I'm like, you are. Please be here. Please, yeah. please read my stories. Please like hear these women. Please come to my events and and listen. And yeah, I think that though it's there's got to be sometimes a I don't know, an interesting kind of back and forth or... I mean, I, I mean I'm mean, i a reporter for CNBC. The majority of our viewers yeah. are men and I want them to read my book. And I want, and in many ways, I wrote this book for them. Yeah. Because men are control the vast majority of money. If you look at um, people who are managing assets for mutual funds or whatever that might be, asset managers. And if you look at the VC landscape, female founders this past year got less than 2% of all venture capital funding down from an average of 3% between 2011 and 2021. So like the numbers are crazy. Men control the money. And I want them to understand that investing in a diverse group of people, promoting a diverse group of people and having diversity in their companies is going to make them more successful. And for me, it's very important to not assume malice of anybody, right? I don't think men are not investing in diversity, which would make them more money because they don't want to make money. Right, right. I think they just don't realize the opportunity. Right, right. So, I mean, what are those some of those conversations like, I guess, for you when you are speaking to men? I mean, if there is that pushback, how do you know? I mean, I know that with most of the time. So I would say um, most of the time men say, I'll talk about the statistics. So mm -hmm. the statistics are female founded startups go public or sell a year earlier on average. Various studies show that female founders or co-ed teams yield higher profits in their startups right. than male only founding teams. Yet 82 percent of VC dollars go to male only founding teams. So there is a disconnect between what seems to work financially and where the money is going. Same thing is true of female CEOs. There's a new ETF of public companies. And so far, since they started tracking this index, the female-founded public companies have outperformed. Mm -hmm. Study after study after study shows diversity in leadership, in the C-suite, in boards. I can go through every metric. Yeah. Yields better results. So there was one or two occasions when men have said to me, where did you get these stats? What do you mean less than 2% of VC dollars went to him? And I was like, well... There are multiple sources for this. Like, this is publicly available information. One guy said to me, what do you mean only, this is when only 8.5% of the Fortune 500 had a female CEO, it has since gone up to 10%. So what do you mean only 8.5%? I was like, it's on the fortune.com website. Like, we can all find this information. And there was a little bit like, that number seems too low. I don't believe it. I think there is a little bit of a, a disbelief sometimes. Yeah. But for the most part, men have said, wow, this seems like an arbitrage opportunity. Mm. Like, seems like people aren't investing as much as they should. Maybe I should take advantage of that. Mm. That is the response I'd like mm -hmm. to see. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. No. And I do think you know, I get asked a lot, how do you kind of decide if someone is is worth still speaking to, you know, and if, if someone's worth your energy and time. And, you know, I, I like to think of it as 
you know, back to that third eye element, right? If you are so confident in understanding who you are and understanding, you know, the receipts, right? If you have the data and you have the stats and if they don't want to believe you, then like they're kind of the ones that look silly. But that's why I really believe in the data. Yeah, I, this book same. started off with me wanting to tell stories of amazing, exceptional women who had defied crazy odds against them. Yeah. And the stories are amazing. I don't want to overlook like the amazing women who I write about in the book. But I realized the more women I interviewed, the more I really needed to have the data. Mm -hmm. I didn't want men to be like, oh, nice, nice little stories about female founders. Like, that's cute. This is not about that. This is like these are new archetypes Mm -hmm. that I want everyone to be emulating. And I realized that the book would be taken far more seriously if I could link the stories to research explaining what's happening in those stories and explaining the data about what happens when you adopt these strategies. Right. Because you have to look at it in that holistic approach, right? Yeah. In in my opinion, even just, I mean, yes, you can go out there and be like, obviously, diversity, uh, investing in women and, and their leadership is morally and ethically correct. But to give it the proper kind of platform that it deserves and the story that it deserves it is a holistic approach. And I actually think that the fact that the emphasis on diverse investing has been on the moral and ethical mm-hmm. element of it actually has minimized exactly. the financial opportunity to it. And I think a lot, you know, most companies now, especially big companies, have like their they have their DEI groups and they have these different initiatives. The fact that those initiatives are often, you know, lumped in with like employee perks. Mm-hmm. The fact that there is this conversation, oh, it's the moral, ethical thing to do. I think we need to move away from that conversation. Forget about what's morally or ethically right. If businesses want to be successful, they need to be diverse. And there's so much different research explaining why that is, why the original homogenous group of people is going to be smarter if they're surrounded by people who are not like them. I just think all of that conversation needs to shift to like the financial value of it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. And then I think that also kind of expands it a little bit, even more, even to a global element, right? But of all of the learnings from this incredible book and all these incredible stories, I mean, what are some of the biggest pieces of advice, I guess, that stand out for you? Oh, for me personally, I mean, I think it's really understand your obstacles. Yeah. I'm um, going into this book writing process. So you have a crazy life, I have a crazy job, I have little kids. And I always sort of adopted the serenity prayer. If you can't control it, like don't spend any time thinking about it. But now I have a different perspective, which, you know, sort of goes back to understanding the double standards. If I'm going to face something, even if I can't control it, I need to understand it. Mm. And I really believe knowledge is power. Yes. And so whenever I'm going into a situation, if I know it's going to be tough, instead of being like, just keep going, forge through, it's like, no, take the time Mm. to really understand these things that you cannot change about society. So that I think is really important. For young people, if you're entering a new industry, just like understand there are going to be some structural things that are hard and you will be more successful if you get them Mm -hmm. and you may change them over time. But near term, you just need to understand what you're dealing with. So I think that's a key one. And then I think also the power of networks and relationships. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of talk about mentorship and sponsorship, and I think that's very important. But so many women who have been massively successful told me that the most valuable advice they got was from their what you know what people call their board of advisors mm-hmm. people who were friends or colleagues or at their level at another company mm. but this idea that you can have trusted professional relationships that can really help you even if they're not a traditional mentor someone who's your boss or more senior than you and your organization it's made me think more sort of strategically about how I and, and push myself to ask people for advice yeah. and I think there's something about that the other thing that was really surprising to me and I think this is valuable in a room like this one is that women don't 
traditionally feel comfortable asking each other for professional help. And when I saw this research, I was like, yes, that resonates. <laughs> and there was this very wonky academic study that talks about, you know, why women don't feel comfortable. You know, men say you get ahead by asking friends for favors and they introduce you and you show that, them how great you are and it all works out. Women say, I would never ask anyone for help. Mm-hmm. Makes them uncomfortable. And there is the researchers in this very wonky study talked about the ick factor. And women <laughs> said it feels icky to ask friends for introductions or help. And I was like, oh. I've never seen the word icky. I've read 300 academic studies, never seen the word <laughs> icky in an academic study before, but it really resonated for yeah. me. And what's so interesting is like, there's nothing wrong with the way men do it or the what men feel comfortable with. They're like, this is natural. This is my friend. I'm going to ask him if he can introduce me to this mm-hmm. other guy. And it's like easy. And women are like, oh, I would never want to ask that of my yeah. friend. It's ridiculous. This is how the world works. Yeah. We need to all get over that. And it was funny because I catch myself doing that mm-hmm. all the time. Like, oh, I wouldn't want to put someone out. I wouldn't want to mix friendship with business. But it's like, no, it's just you, we need to get over that. And that was a, that's really changed my perspective. So I'll acknowledge, like, I feel really uncomfortable asking you for this favor, but would you mind an introduction to so-and-so? Because that's just, it's a weird thing that women are socialized to feel, and it's not rational. Right. Well, and it's practice, right? Like, the more you practice just asking, the worst that happens is someone says no, right? And also it destigmatizes yeah. it. I've been to many um, women's dinners now where the woman running it will be like, okay, we know that women do this thing where they don't want to ask each other for help. So at the end of the night, everyone's going to ask each other for something else. We're just doing it. Like, get over it, you know? Right. I mean, in my community, I literally have a, like, give and ask yeah. channel. I'm like, we should all go around in a circle and say, hey, this is what I I need. Let's be dedicated to seeing each other succeed and helping each other succeed because the men in our lives have been doing this the whole time. And there's nothing wrong with and, it. Yeah. yeah. And exactly. So kind of just destigmatizing that. But it's, gosh, Sally was speaking at an event I did earlier this week, and this resonates so much. She was saying how... We knew it when we were in high school. You know, we, we never went anywhere without our, our pack, like, you know, our girls. And then you go to college and, you know, you don't go to a house party without your girls, you know, your network. And then somewhere in, in career land, you kind of lose sight of that. And so we kind of need to get back to the, that fundamental of you should have a network of people to support you in all aspects. But I think it's also worth acknowledging how much things have changed right. from the 90s when Sally was the only woman in the room. Back yeah. in those in that era, in those days, it didn't make sense for women to really try to bring up other women with them. It just mm-hmm. wasn't rational because if Sally was surrounded by four other women, only one of them was going right. to survive. There's only room. There was this yeah. a scarcity, you know, a scarcity approach to things, which was realistic. Now there is room for more than one woman in the room. There's room for more than one person of color in the room. And the sense that you can't just have a token mm-hmm. person who is of a minority group means that women and people of color understand they really have to invest to bring other people along with them. And there's so much amazing research about this idea of hitting a critical mass. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to not just have one or two people from a minority group and a mm-hmm. larger homogenous group because the culture is going to still be entirely dominated. Yeah by the larger homogenous group, you need to have that 20 or 30 percent and then the culture really can start to change. Right. And I think we're really at this tipping point because we're seeing more female entrepreneurs than ever before. And it's really, really exciting. And books like this are to read 60 plus women's stories. I mean, that's the representation. You can't be what you can't see or what you don't read, you know. And so to be able to actually see that and see that it's real and it's in all different types of forms. I mean, that's just a direct inspiration for so many other women to go out there and want to 
you know, build their own tables. And, and I also think it's important for men to see that. Exactly. Like, it's not, I mean, there's so much talk about, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And yes, it's super important. But I also, in wanting to speak to the men, want men to see this is what leaders look like. Right. You should invest in people who look like this and you should try to lead like them too. Because we not don't just need women to be more ambitious. We need men to see a different vision for what the next generation of leaders exactly. is. Exactly. We, we have to move away from, uh, this is the template for a CEO. And or this is a template yeah. for someone to invest in, right? And kind of swipe that out and understand that also the world is just like evolving so much. Millennials and Gen Zers make up almost 50% of the population already, you know, like in their tastes and their behaviors and the trends that they're interested in. I mean, it's evolving and changing and it, but it has taken women like the ones you wrote in your book to pave the path so that we can you know, ride those wakes and follow in their footsteps. So I do want to open it up to questions if anyone's interested in asking some, feel free to raise your hand. Alexandra. Hi, thank you so much for, for putting this event together. My question to you, Julia, is which story was the hardest to write? Which one was the marine in her like edit and go, this is high one? I would say there's a story that I could have written a whole book about. And so that was the hardest because I had to cut it down. Um, and I it was originally in three different chapters and I brought it into one chapter. Um, and it's this woman named Toyin Ajayi, Dr. Toyin Ajayi, and she runs a company called City Block Health. It's based in Brooklyn, worth now billions of dollars, and it totally reimagines healthcare. And instead of getting paid on the volume of tests or treatment that they provide, they get paid on the long-term outcomes of the care. And her story leading up to founding this company is so awesome. And there are lessons in her story that I think about all the time. Her story, her sort of entrepreneurial story started when she'd gone to Cambridge and Stanford and she moved to Sierra Leone, to Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, to help fix up their pediatric hospital and improve the pediatric care. And she got there and she realized the water didn't work. Like water didn't come out of the pipes. Surgeons and doctors were like carrying in water to sterilize their instruments. And she's like, we can't improve the medical care until we fix this pipes problem. And so what was so interesting, and she's an amazing storyteller, just a phenomenal human being, but there was something about her explaining that she knew her mission was to fix the medical care, but she also knew that she had to look at the underlying issue, which in this case was the water supply that I think about all the time. Like when you're trying to fix a problem, mm. I think of what she says, like, what is the water supply that is broken? And what is the fundamental underlying issue that may seem like it has nothing to do with the medical care that you need to deal with first that might be harder to deal with because it's not your expertise, but you need to deal with it. And so for her with City Block Health, they serve patients who are oftentimes homeless or low income. And so what they do is they get their patients access to social services, access to housing if they're unhoused. And so what she's doing, she's like, what's the water supply that needs to be fixed here? What's the fundamental underlying issue that is going to make them healthier over the long run? And she's a great storyteller. And I just love her story. And it could it, someday it'll be a book. <laughs> I was like, I remember that chapter. It was very long. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. it, it, it well deserved. Yeah. Right? It needed that that link. And what her story really reminds us and, oh, you wrote this. It was, if some leaders only see the trees, female leaders tend to be more likely to see the whole forest, right? Yeah. They're going to look at the foundational issue of how to solve a problem. And I just love that because it's so true. Any other questions? Grace, what's up? I think my question is, how will you leave or both of you kind of lead differently now? Mm. I never thought I was a leader before I wrote this book. <laughs> I never. Now I think I'm a leader. I think we're all leaders. 
I think, you know, there's a chapter in the book about purpose and the value of having purpose aligned with profits and like the idea that it's so much more powerful to have a company um, or a leader that really understands what their greater purpose is beyond just gener- you know, making money for their investors. And I mean, I feel like spreading the word about this book has become my purpose. And so I thought I was going to rush out and write another book about something different. And now I just want to help inspire women and get this message out there. So I think I'm thinking more about purpose in the mm. next chapter for me. Yeah. For, <laughs> she's like, you have to answer to Nicole. Um, yeah. For me, it's been really authenticity is what I've learned. Uh, I had a major inflection point of when I was building my company where my marketing spend was just too high. My organic growth was just not really hidden like I wanted it to. And my company w- was originally called, uh, what, the FinTech. And I realized that, okay, well, what am I really passionate about here? And I had to kind of reckon with myself and my own authenticity. And the reality is, is that I'm passionate about elevating women's stories, about global financial inclusion. And that doesn't happen unless we have women like Sharana Sorora, who is in the book. And so I realized, okay, well, I can lean into this and see what happens. So after like a year of building my company, I changed its name after having like 50,000 subscribers and all these things. And I was terrified and it ended up being the the best thing I could have done. Since I changed the name, my customer acquisition cost is as low as it's ever been. My organic growth is completely up. I barely spend any money on marketing dollars anymore. And so I think when you lean into the authenticity of who you are and what you care about most, that's really where you're going to find your sweet spot of success. So awesome question, Grace. Maybe one more. Yes, what's up? Hi, uh, Jess. Um, my question is, it kind of touched on, you know, what you talked about with Sally Krawcheck and, um, you know, the people that women lead. I think some there's a constant tension between, you know, I need to sort of walk the walk to be in the room because how am I going <laughs> to change things if I'm not in the room versus... I know what I really believe in and I need to sort of speak out about that. And I find, you know, I have that tension myself and I definitely have that tension when I'm trying to advise the women or people of color to be up for me. Um, because I don't kill them. I, I always give the advice like you are not, I'm not expecting you to like be a martyr for this cause and, and, you know, deserve sort of the professional development and then the career progression that you want. Um, I guess so. I guess my question is like, how how do you think about showing up as your authentic self in a way that doesn't risk? I think that's a really great question and a really complicated question. So I think there's no clear answer. But I do think a lot of it comes with like the chapters of life, right? And figuring out what you need and what you want in that moment. And this idea that if you're at a phase where you're learning and you're like, it's worth me navigating this uncomfortable situation so I can learn and then have the freedom to do what I want to do. I don't know if that's the right answer or the wrong answer, but a lot of women told me that that's how they manage that decision, saying, you know, I'm I'm starting off. I don't have the ability to go off and do my own thing um, right now because I don't know enough yet. So I have to suck it up and work here until I really know what I'm talking about. So I have the strength and power to go off and do it even better on my own. So I think that's like sort of just realizing that, you know, life is long and life is short and like we're each going to have these chapters and so if you have to suck it up, it's not going to be for forever. Or if you need to take a break and do your own thing, you can always, you know, go back and forth. So I don't think any of these decisions are necessarily permanent. Right. I think it's remembering that there are so many blueprints out there that you can kind of look towards to inspire you. But at the end of the day, the blueprint is always you, right? Like no one can create your journey like you can for yourself. And so the moment that you decide that you can be authentically you and you get to kind of explore that, especially in, in business and building it's something, 
I do think that that timeline is just going to be so unique to everyone. You know, I, I feel really fortunate to still be, I'm almost out of my 20s, but in my 20s still. And if it wasn't for women who did go out there and put themselves out there, put themselves through being a, in financial services or male-dominated spaces for decades and decades, you know, if they didn't go out there, go through those experiences and then go off and build something, you know, like like Sally or Julia or whoever, you know, then I wouldn't have been able to also pave my own pathway in my 20s, you know? So it's like we all have our own timelines, I think, and our lives are all wild and crazy, but... Yeah. I'm going to ask my final question for you, Julia, which I ask all my guests on my show, which is if we need to be the change we wish to see, what change do you wish to see and how do you embody it? Oh, there's so much change I wish to see. (laughs) I think we need to break free of stereotypes and archetypes. And I think that we apply these stereotypes to ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think it's so interesting because I talk in the book a lot about pattern matching Mm -hmm. and I prefer to use that term over unconscious bias. Mm. Um, because I think in a way pattern matching sort of takes the sting out of it. Like it's not yeah. your fault. You're just trying to fit people into a pattern and I don't right. pattern. Um, but I think, you know, my hope is that, you know, and this is true for men as well as women is that we can like identify those patterns and say, I'm not, I don't feel beholden to that anymore. Um, or it's okay if you don't want to be part of that pattern. So I think it's just sort of liberating ourselves from these stereotypes that have been so dominant for so long. And I feel like I've seen them on, whether it's on the cover of fortune magazine or on CNBC, like, we feel like we have to fit ourselves into these boxes. And it's sometimes hard if you're breaking free from it, but ultimately can be more gratifying. Yeah, 100%. I completely agree. Julia, thank you so much for thank joining me. So thank you so much. We've made it. I'm My hands are freezing. Thank you all for braving the cold. So, thank you all. <laughs> Such troopers. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. To hear our next story from another diverse leader, be sure to tune in next week. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our show and give it a five-star rating as it helps our message reach more people who want to find belonging too.